Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Med- Medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today... I'm standing on Finborough Road in West Brompton, SW10. One stop west of the stabbing of Countess Lubienska. Three streets east of the last killing by the sadistic little drummer boy. And a few streets northeast of where police brutality possibly led to a suspect's amnesia. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Typical for this area, Finborough Road consists of a long line of five-storey white stone terraces, with each floor offset. So from the basement, all you can see is feet, tyres and possibly poodle turds. And to truly infuriate the disabled, simply to get to the ground floor, you have to first ascend a set of stone steps. With no front garden, just a sharp descent down a set of hard stone steps to the basement. It's the balconies where the tenants tend to dump their crap. Whether a broken pram, a burst bouncy castle, an excess of empty booze bottles, the gym equipment that they only used once, and an oversized patio set for the one summer's day that they can sit and sup wine like they're in Venice as they inhale the fumes of 50 trucks. But at 5.40am, on Thursday the 6th of May 1948, on the basement steps of 17 Finborough Road, the broken body of 26-year-old part-time waitress and prostitute Winifred Mulholland was found. Missing for four days, and dead for almost one. The position of her body posed a perplexing mystery. As had she been hit by a car? Had she fallen from a height? Or had a killer dumped her in plain sight, on a busy road? But why? My name is Michael. I'm your tour guide. And this is Murder Mile. Episode 214 The Woman in Red Part 1 There wasn't any rhyme or reason why Winifred Mulholland would be murdered. 
She lived a modest life. She had few debts. And she didn't cause any trouble. As alongside thousands of other single women, struggling in the post-war era, she made the best of what she had. And she had big plans for the future. But there was a piece of her life which was missing. And this hole she filled with little white lies. Born on the 11th of July 1922, at the Elizabeth Hospital in Burtley, Gateshead, in the northeast of England, Winifred Virginia Mulholland was one of two children to Florence and James Mulholland. Raised in a poor mining community and living a hand-to-mouth existence, even though it was said by Florence and James that their marriage was not a happy one. Being unable to pay for a divorce, they plodded on as best they could. Maybe this unhappy upbringing was the reason that Virginia, as she preferred to be called, would remain an eternal child. Always drifting from daydream to nightmare and fleshing out her life with fantasy. Across her 26 years alive, Virginia would retain a sweetness about her. Being a dainty five foot and two inches tall and barely eight stone, her fair hair was as light and airy as candy floss. Her eyes twinkled as if only innocent thoughts buzzed her brain like a bee seeking out pollen. And shining like dunes on the whitest of beaches, were her two apple-blossom cheeks, which protruded as if a naughty word was perched on her lips. Years later, Lily and her landlady would state, she was a quiet, babyish sort of girl who was very fond of dancing to my wireless at home. But Lillian didn't truly know her as I thought she was a Canadian. Why Virginia would pretend to be a Canadian is anyone's guess. But she did. In 1936, age 14, she moved with her parents and her brother to London, seeking better work and brighter prospects. But as happened to many families, they found the pay was higher, but so were the costs. Having finished school with a basic school certificate, her options as a working-class girl were limited. And as she hadn't got the skills to become a secretary, she earned a modest wage by waitressing in cafes. And that was her life. She worked long hours to earn a pittance. She had no big plans for the future. And then she went home to witness the bickering and the sniping of her arguing parents. By 1940, being a few months into the Second World War, and at the start of an eight-month bombing campaign of British cities by the Luftwaffe, with her brother sent to boarding school, 
Virginia and her parents moved into a small cottage in the remote village of Wadhurst in Kent, 50 miles south of London. It should have been a place of safety, far from the bombed-out ruins of the West End. But being stuck alone with her warring parents, whose relationship was so bad that they were forced to live in separate parts of the same cottage. She often came home to more screams and explosions than she heard in the city. In 1945, with the war finally over and a sense of normality slowly returning, as Virginia had been struck down with an unidentified gastric disease, she returned to her parents' cottage for two years, but then she left. only to encounter her very first brush with murder. It's an odd link, which no one has ever connected. But in 1946, Virginia worked as a waitress at the Victory Cafe at 266 Edgeway Road in Paddington. For two years, she was employed by the cafe's manager, Alice Williams, who all of her staff would call Madam, as previously reported in episode 162. Nothing could be proven, but it was suggested that although Alice supplied employment and support to many young women in a difficult situation, she was potentially also a Madam who took possession of their official papers, who got the girls into sex work, and who may also have taken a cut of their earnings. But on Boxing Day 1950, just 19 months after Virginia went missing, Alice was stabbed to death in the cafe's kitchen by June McKechnie, a friend, a customer, and a prostitute in an argument over money. It is uncertain if Alice got any of her waitresses into prostitution. But around that time, Virginia received the first of four convictions for soliciting, with the last on the 28th of January 1948, shortly before she left. That said, there is very little information about what type of prostitute she was. For Virginia, Sex work wasn't a career option, but a casual habit she hopped into to supplement her very meagre income. As with many women in the late 1940s, the war had provided them with job opportunities unavailable prior, which included better pay and higher skills by making munitions for the war effort. But with conscription over, and many such jobs being reserved for ex-soldiers. Several forms of prostitution would fill the gap. It wasn't always sex that she provided. As being an attractive and affable young lady, she sometimes escorted men on trips to the cinema, on dates to affordable restaurants, 
and provided companionship like she was a surrogate girlfriend. And yes, she also gave them full sex if they wanted it, but also a grope, a fondle, some hand relief, or a little like kissing if they were that way inclined. For her services, they paid in cash, but also often with a hot meal, a warm bed, and black market items like chocolate and tights. With the rift between Virginia and her father ongoing, and being ashamed of her occupation, she kept a distance from her family in those final years, writing regularly to her mother, but rarely visiting. One of the last known addresses she was known to live at was the home of Mr. and Mrs. Evans, at a three-story terrace at 87 Winchester Road in Pimlico, where she lodged alone in a small second-floor room. It should have provided her with security, but with the Evanses treating her with suspicion and a violent argument having erupted just shy of Christmas 1947, Virginia risked injury, poverty and homelessness owing to the unwanted affections of their son, who was described as a little vacant. Taking his side, Mrs. Evans threatened to do me an injury if I did not go out with him, Virginia confided in a friend. And having paid £39, £2,000 today in rent in advance. She also risked losing her money over a sad little boy. With her contract hardly worth the notepaper it was scrawled on, Virginia left her lodging quietly, but agreed to take Mrs. Evans's rabbit fur coat as payment for any monies that she had lost. This was the coat she would be found dead in. But there would be nothing to connect the Evanses to the dumping of her body. It's understandable then that around this time she decided to move overseas and was in the process of applying to live in Canada. So determined was Virginia that she even adopted a Canadian accent. And to Mrs. Lillian Hall, the new landlady at 8 Bremer Road, Mrs. Virginia Mulholland of Ottawa, as she liked to call herself, said she was returning soon to Canada. In the last letter she sent her mother, just weeks before her death, Virginia would write, My life is hard. But I hope, with God on my side, I can get through it. Only if God was watching over her, he must have blinked. Sunday the 2nd of May 1948 was an ordinary day for Virginia. At 4pm, Lillian would state, she left my house in Camberwell and said that she was going out. Although she didn't say where she was going, which wasn't unusual, 
across her shoulder was slung a string handbag containing a purse and a small red diary, into which she noted her clients and the monies that they paid. She wore a rabbit's fur coat, with a mend on the hem that Lillian had recently repaired herself. And on her feet, she wore a pair of black, toeless sling black shoes, with red heels to match her red dress. That was the last time that Virginia was seen alive. With no known place of work, no close contact with her family, and no regular routines with friends, being the type of girl who did her own thing and could easily be gone for days, no one reported her missing. Four days later, and four and a half miles west of Camberwell, on Thursday the 6th of May at 5.40am, Albert Edward Stamp was walking to work when he cut through Finborough Road, as per usual. Strolling along the north side of the pavement, as he passed 17 Finborough Road, he spotted a stockinged foot of what he thought was a discarded mannequin peeping out between the wrought iron railings, its toes up. Peering over, the left leg was buckled underneath, twisted at an unnatural angle, as if the hip had been dislocated or the knee had been snapped 90 degrees left. As long splashes of blood run vertically along the length, both legs. Being the wrong size and shape, he knew it was too realistic to be a dummy. With her legs splayed over the stonework, her torso sprawled across the length of the top step, and her head hanging backwards over the lower step. Facing the basement, with her body facing skywards, either she'd been hit by a car and landed in a heap, had fallen from a height, or she'd been dumped by someone who saw her as nothing more than disposable, like rubbish chucked out with the bins. What had happened was uncertain, as maybe in a fall, her red dress had ridden up, her cami knickers were shown. To the side of her head lay a string handbag almost as if it was a pillow to rest on. As underneath her smashed and shattered body lay her rabbit's fur coat, worn as she was last seen in it. And yet, although she was dressed to go out, the shoes were missing, but she hadn't walked barefoot. Believing this to be an accident, Albert ran to nearby St. Stephen's Hospital. At 6.30am, Dr. John Higgs examined the body and certified her as dead. And at 6.40am, Detective Inspector Albert Webb arrived.
speaking to the neighbors. No one knew the woman, had seen her nearby, and no one had heard any suspicious sounds which could explain her injuries or how she got there. According to her details, she wasn't a resident at the house she was found in front of, and she had no known reason to be there. If she was hit by a car, where were the broken lights or the scratched paint flecks? If she had fallen from one of the balconies, how did she get into the house? And if her body had been dumped here, where was she killed? As the lack of fresh blood at the scene would prove that she hadn't died where she was found. She had no stab wounds, no bullet holes, and no obvious evidence of an impact with the car. She hadn't been dragged a considerable distance. But where she had, it hadn't happened outside. And there was no alcohol, no drugs, nor poison in her system to suggest that her demise may have been a result of a suicide. If she was murdered, her killer would most likely, according to the detectives, have dumped the body in a place she had no known association with, and usually within one mile of where the murder had taken place. As the longer he spent in public with the body, the more likely he is to be caught and to leave clues. It was a crime scene which didn't make much sense. She was a woman who didn't belong here, who no one had seen, with no signs of a robbery. And although her face had sustained significant injuries, if a killer had tried to hide her identity, why did he dump her with her handbag, her purse, her ID and her diary? Inside the red diary, were entries such as February the 11th. I met a client, failed to record his name, four pounds. And yet there was no references to the night or client in question, and no page had been torn out. But then again, maybe she only filled in her diary after she'd serviced the client and not before. And as for jewellery, Although she never wore anything expensive, just cheap plastic costume pieces to highlight her look, under her body lay a single clipped earring and a bit of broken brooch. But where were the other pieces? Had someone taken them? Or were they in the place where she died? The pathologist, Dr. Donald Tear, saw the body in situ at 10 a.m. In his notes, he observed, It was lying on its back on the upper steps leading down to the basement of 17 Finborough Road. The atmospheric temperature was 57.5 degrees Fahrenheit, roughly 13.8 degrees Celsius. The body felt cold, but rigor mortis was not detected in the jaw or the limbs. 
as it was unlikely that she had died where she was found. Her time of death was impossible to determine. As decomposition was beginning to set in in the internal organs, but as the congealed blood and the bruises were older than the decomposition, her injuries were at least two to three days old. But her possible time of death was no more than a day. With a dislocated left hip and knee, a fracture in her left lower femur, and a fracture of the fifth cervical vertebrae of the neck. These injuries were most likely as a result of a short fall, but they hadn't been the cause of the death, as it was likely that she was already dead. Like robbery, rape was ruled out as a possible motive, as although her vagina contained a large quantity of white mucus, believed to be sperm, although there was a small erosion to the lining. I found nothing inconsistent with her having had sexual intercourse prior to death. Inside her throat, there was extensive bruising to both sides of the tongue, and as was apparently due to her teeth being driven into her tongue, owing to a sharp impact, with dried blood found in her trachea, it was clear that she was still breathing after the attack, which had occurred hours. If not days earlier, the autopsy confirmed that her cause of death was not due to the fall, but to the injuries to her face. Four wounds, all swift and shocking enough to render her unconscious, and her death to be slow. Doctor Tier would state. Her cause of death was laceration to the brain, as across the centre of her forehead was an irregular lacerated wound four inches long, with an area of depressed fractures an inch and three quarters wide from the frontal bone, which radiated back into the roof of the eyes and the nose. Using a heavy blunt object. She had been hit hard over the head with an object made of steel or iron, and being of an irregular shape and surface, it had caved in her skull, sending sharp shards of bone into her brain. Owing to the force, this injury was unlikely to have been an accident or as a result of the fall, as owing to free-flowing blood from the wound. She was alive, and her heart was still beating when she was attacked. This swift and sudden impact resulted in rapid unconsciousness and a slow and agonizing death, which almost certainly paralyzed her entire body in seconds. Only her assailant's attack was far from finished. Upon what was described as her once apple blossom cheeks, a series of semicircular abrasions, with one on the right cheek and two on the left, had left distinct circular marks. Being of even size and slightly octagonal, 
she'd been struck three times with a hammer across the face, as the bones had fractured across the bridge of her nose, down to her chin, and right into the depths of her eye sockets. All of these injuries had occurred while she was still alive, but everything else was post-mortem, including the superficial abrasions to her knuckles on her left hand and a laceration to her nose, which may have occurred when she was dragged from where she had died to where she would eventually be dumped. And with the fractures of the fifth vertebrae of the neck, a dislocated hip, knee, and a smaller fracture to the lower left thigh bone, all were post-mortem injuries, resulting from at least a 15-foot fall. The autopsy asked more questions than it answered, such as where had she died? Why was her body dumped here? Who had attacked her? And why? And if she was attacked on Saturday the 2nd of May, and she wasn't found until Thursday the 6th, what happened to her for the four days in between? All of the tenants at 17 Finborough Road aided the police as best they could with the investigation, and each provided witness statements into what they had seen and heard prior to the body's discovery. They were John Eldred, a docker who lived in the basement, George Ayton, an engineer who lived on first, Jenna Kubert, a toolmaker who lived with his wife on the second, and Dr. Wallace, a female GP, on the third. Police also spoke to all of her family members, her closest friends, her landlady Lillian Hall, as well as her former employer, Alice Williams of the Victory Cafe, and Mr. and Mrs. Evans, and their slightly vacant son, whose coat Virginia was wearing. Only there didn't seem to be an immediate reason why anyone would want her dead. She wasn't a bad person. She didn't blackmail anyone. And her only real secret was her desire to move to Canada. The murder of Winifred Virginia Mulholland would prove to be one of the most baffling cases that the police had ever encountered. On the surface, at least. And yet they would have this case wrapped up and a prime suspect in custody by the end of the day, with every piece of evidence proving conclusive. But this would be a turning point for many of the investigating officers, as the murder itself would go against everything they had known about murderers and their motives. As although they believed that her killer was at least a mile away, all the while, he was watching them and listening to every word. The concluding part of The Woman in Red continues next week.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Oh, there we go, folks. Oh, cripes hat off there you go <coughs> oh dear i just finished editing ep 213 because obviously all these were oh sorry welcome to extra mile unscripted unedited blah 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 um because uh because i've I'd written these all in sequence because while i while i couldn't talk i thought i'll i'll write which turned out well because I just I've just finished literally editing two one three, and because it's mid afternoon, I've been to the cafe and I charged up my laptop. I thought, you know what, bollocks to it. I'm going to record two one four. So this is this is an evening record. So I probably won't have a cup of tea because it's a bit too late for me. And I want my dindins, but you know what? Oh dear, oh dear. Uh, people in uh, who listen to walk with me. Uh, will know this because I recorded it for last week's episode. So this isn't a spoiler, they've already heard it. But um, when I was recording Walk With Me, I was talking about last week's episode and I went into the bakery. It was half two. They're normally shut by this point. They were still open. I thought, oh, I'll peep in. Oh, and then I looked in and they didn't have any Belgian buns and they didn't have uh, any Bakewell tarts, but they had some school cake. Oh, school cake. If you're from overseas, you, you won't know what it is. But oh, in in Britain, when we used to have our, our school dinners, and they weren't particularly good, but you'd, you'd have a especially especially if you grew up. I think I was lucky because the 1990s apparently is when when all the food went really shit. I think we were in the era where there was still not too bad school dinners, and oh, school cake was one of it. Oh, a nice little sponge with some icing on top and some hundreds of thousands, but the the sponge is really soft and moist. Ooh, god damn it, it's good. So I went to the I went to the shop and I bought two, and I had one before I started this episode because I thought I thought you know what bollocks, I need it. I'm just gonna open the window. Unfortunately, I am uh, in the place where the uh, posh bastards who have little tiny pathetic little uh, helicopters and uh, uh, 
airplanes they they leave and they fly over you and they follow the canal and it's really 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 fucking annoying and they go <laughs> with their crappy little aircraft and they go oh look at me i'm on my way to a business meeting oh i'm important i have a little aircraft twats and because they can't navigate they use the canal as kind of a guide because they're twats so there we go you'll probably hear one fly over shortly mm. I'm just enjoying my... Here's me saying I'm not going to have a cup of tea uh, because it's got caffeine in it. I'm having my uh, lime diet coke. I mean, go figure that one out. Anyway, it's almost Dindin's time. So almost time for Dindin's. So we'll do some quiz questions uh, and then we'll do some <coughs> some extra stuff for the episode. It always happens because of my bronchitis and my lungs. My lungs aren't 100% yet. I'm still struggling with changes in temperature. That seems to get me. So uh, I went to go get my post the other day. And I walked in. I'm back to doing distances again. I can't do hills, but I can do distances. My lungs are all right with distances, just not hills. Uh, and I walked from the outside where it was relatively cool. And I walked into where I get my post. And the guys in there, I don't know why, they always have the heating on full blast. And I walked in and I had a massive coughing fit. And I was just like, I'm going to have to go outside, guys. I said while coughing. And I had to stand outside the window and get them to open, open my P.O. box for me. Because I just couldn't, just couldn't. A massive coughing fit. Anyway, Michael, your life is so exciting, isn't it? You cough a lot. You think about Eva and you eat cake. Well, there we go. That's pretty much it. Uh, let's do some quiz questions. Okay. Um, question number one. As always, because I was ill when I wrote this, <coughs> um, there's only eight questions because my brain couldn't handle ten. Uh, question number one. What was the name? What were the names of uh, Virginia's parents? Oh, burps! That's not the name of the parents. Question number two: In what part of Gateshead? <coughs> That's not the quiz question. In part, uh, in what part of Gateshead was she born? Don't forget, as always, I haven't edited this episode yet, so uh, some of these questions might not appear in the episode because I may edit it out. This feels like a long episode, so I may edit some stuff out. Question number three. What height was Virginia? I almost gave away the answer then. Question number four. How far south of London was Wadhurst, where she lived with her parents? Question number five. During the war, during the war, which hospital did she work at? Question number six, on what road was the Victory Cafe? Oh, connection there, very exciting. Question number seven, how many convictions did she have for soliciting? And question number eight, in what part of London did Mr and Mrs Evans live? <coughs> oh, you get to enjoy listening to me coughing. Um... So I thought I might dive into the uh, witness statements. Let me just let me just have a look. Witness statements. Witness statements. Uh, yeah. Let's do the witness statements because this is a two-parter. I have written part two. That's already done. But I just I'm going to edit these as I go along. So we've got uh, witness statements by John Eldred. John Eldred lived in flat A, which was the basement flat. So that's kind of an important flat, given the fact that the body was found on the steps going down to the basement. Uh, I filmed this location last week. Really interesting. I got there 
uh, filmed the road. I always do things in a kind of a distance first, then I get closer and closer. And as I was walking near 17 Finborough Road, I realised that the the man, the next door neighbour to 17 Finborough Road was on the first floor, was sitting on his balcony that I was needed to film next door to it. And I thought, oh shit. So I walked up to... Um, I walked up to the building itself, holding my phone in my hand, and I filmed uh, the entrance to the house. And then I filmed down the steps, and he was clearly watching me. And then I went across the road and thought, right, I'm just going to film what I need to, my little bits. Um, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you can see the full video on there. Or go on TikTok, there's kind of an, an edited version. It's just a single camera version but if you're on uh if you're a patreon subscriber you get to see the full version it's edited nicely and you get to see all the all the bits and pieces it's nicely done but you can see the bit that i filmed you can see the steps they're still as they are today um and it was really weird i was recording uh this bit and then a lady came out of the building i was filming in front of and she said oh i just heard you say murder and i was like oh d don't worry i'm not it's not your house there's not a murder here and i'm not filming your house and she was like no, no i'm just interested i'm coming to the door so she came to the door and uh, we had a nice chat about the murder in the house opposite while the man who was the next door neighbor of 17 finborough road was watching us so i explained to her what it was um and she went oh i like the sound of that can i have you can you got any details about your podcast so i gave her uh, a card for my podcast so that may be a new listener Ooh, exciting so uh there we go <coughs> so yeah john eldred li lived in the basement flat he was a docker uh, he in his statement he said uh on wednesday the 5th of may uh, which is the night before i returned home between 9 p.m and 9 30 p.m i saw nothing outside of 17 finborough road uh, if there had been a body there, I should have seen it. Um, obviously, because that's his only way into, into his home, is to step over the body to get into the basement. So there was clearly no body there the night before, and he didn't hear anything either. Um, I might not do Dr. Donald Tears his statement because we use the bulk of it there uh dr james higgs he was the doctor who was called uh he arrived at 6 30 a.m went to seven finsborough road saw the body was dead um if you're a patron subscriber you can i i've put crime scene photos on there um it's they're really weird like when i saw them in the these were another one the the, the files that i opened up uh in the archives and i looked at them and i went oh okay uh they were meant to have been put i was meant to have been put in the isolation room the invigilation room so no one can see you and i was in the regular room so i had to discreetly take the pictures but it's weird when you look at how virginia's body has been dumped on the stairs and the way it looks it, it looks posed it looks like it looks like uh, something that you'd expect. Like, do you know when Powell and uh, is it Powell and Pressburger who did uh, Peeping Tom? Uh, I think it was either one or both of them. Um, it's 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 got that kind of nineteen sixties kind of weirdness to it. Of of you look at it and it looks posed. It looks arty. It looks really strange when you. But yeah, it looks posed. But it 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 almost certainly isn't. But is it? It's. It's just weird. It's really weird. It's and it's hor it's horrible, but yeah, weird. Um Albert Edward was that one of the quiz questions? I think it was gonna be one of the quiz questions. There, good. I'm glad I didn't use that. Um the the gentleman who found the body <sighs> uh, mosquito just landed on my on my arm. Luckily it was dead. 
Edward Albert Stamp found the body at 5.40am. Uh, he lived on Billing Road, not too far away. He was on his way to work, and he normally passed through Finborough Road. Finborough Road is kind of a main road, so it makes sense that he would walk down that route. If you go either side, you're going to go into the side road. So Finborough Road is kind of a direct route, if, especially if you go into Earl's Court, the tube station. Uh, he said, I found a woman in the area with part of her legs on top of the steps and her body hanging down. <coughs> uh, there were no shoes she appeared dead and i informed st stephen's hospital uh, he told the porter there to call the police uh he at that point he was working for london transport uh at earl's court station um we've already heard from mrs lillian hall who was her landlady uh she lived at eight uh bremar road in brixton it says brixton it's actually camberwell uh she was a housewife she kind of ran <coughs> ran the lodging house with her husband see she she seems like a decent lady she seemed to like virginia virginia had been there a couple of weeks by that point um i may have edited it out the episode i think my plan was to edit it out um originally uh she got on well with uh virginia and lillian got on really well together they got to know each other Lillian believed that she was a waitress. She said uh, that uh, Virginia had said that she was a waitress over in Fleet Street area, but she didn't say what the name of the uh, cafe was. She said that she normally left the house at around 6 p.m. and normally came back about 8 a.m. Sometimes she would leave earlier and go to the cinema. Uh, Sometimes she would stay away for a night or maybe two nights. She never had anyone back to the flat. Uh, and she sometimes hung around with another girl, but she didn't know the name of the other girl. Um, and that's pretty much all she knew about her. Don't forget, she'd only been there a couple of weeks. Um, or I need to be careful with this. I won't read Detective Inspector Albert Webb's statement because that leads to too much for next week. We, we, we're going to die. There's a lot to cover next week. So I really need to be really careful here. There's a lot. That it, it, I mean, it's a fascinating case. It really is. Uh, which is why it's a two-parter. It has to be a two-parter because there's, there's just a lot to cover. Um, I can't do DDI balls either. Oh, no. Can't do that. Can't do that. Can't do that. Uh, the Toolmaker. Uh, Zenit Kubert. Uh, he lived on the second floor uh, with his wife, Monica. Um, oh, see, I can't do that one either. Bollocks. Th- only because we use that next week. Um, Evid- oh, right. Oh, this is... See, I've put this in, but I can't use any of that. I can't use any of it because it gives away too much for next week. It's it's a really interesting case. It really is. It's uh it's one of these ones where you you just think, why do we know more about this case? It's it's absolutely fascinating. And even for the for the lady who uh, lived opposite, who I was telling her about the case, I told her I gave her a very very quick pricey of what the episode was about. She's like, oh wow, interesting. And it's like it is. I, I, I can't I can't tell you what it's about now because it's. It ruins a lot for next week. I think that's it. I think that's all I'm really going to be able to say. This may be a very, very short um, extra mile. 
Oh, I could just I could just rant and ramble about shit. Uh, while we were recording this, there was a dog behind me and to the right who was barking his head off, and then there's a dog behind me far to the left who was barking his head off, and they seemed to be having a nice little conversation. Little bastards, utter bastards. I love dogs except except when they're they're uh, barking when I'm I'm trying to do recording. They would be upset if they were recording a doggy podcast, wouldn't they? And I was there going. Ah! They would be absolutely furious. They'd be like, we've been t- trying to talk about biscuits here and walkies and leads and what's the best lead and uh, h- how how long you should sniff each other's assholes for. Maybe that's what maybe that's what I'll do in this podcast. A, convers- a conversation about sniffing assholes. Although I have just finished listening to uh, a podcast about Elon Musk uh, and he's an asshole. So there we go. I wonder if I wonder if this episode will be taken down now because he has the power, doesn't he? He has the power to, to turn things off and to go. You, you're an asshole. I hate you. That stops. What a twat! Right, let's do the quiz questions. <coughs> oh, healthy. Um, question number one: What was the name of? Uh, <coughs> what was the name of Virginia's parents? Florence and James Question number two In what part of Gateshead was she born? Bertley I I doubt anyone got that one Unless you live in Gateshead I doubt you got that one Question number three What height was she? She was five foot two Question number four How far south of London was Wadhurst Where she lived with her parents? It was fifty miles Question number five. During the war, during the war, which hospital did she work at? It was the Westminster Hospital, where she uh, she worked for the Auxiliary uh, Auxiliary Women's Air Force. Uh, and eventually, this is just details that you don't really need to know. Um, eventually, the hospital got moved to uh, Windsor because of all the bombings in London. Uh, but I think there was a bit of an argument with her and her father again. Her father wouldn't allow her to come back. He, he seems like a bit of a twat. Uh, question number six. On what road was the Victory Cafe? It was Edgware Road. That was a really fascinating bit. When I was going through the um, the police files and the court records, and I, I saw Victory Cafe, and I thought, oh, I wonder. Then it was like the same address. And I was like, oh, it's the same address. And then I checked the dates, and I went, oh. God, she would have known Alice. Weird, that isn't it? So, um, uh, Virginia murdered, and then a year and a half later, her boss at the Victory Cafe murdered. Mm. Uh, question number seven How many convictions for soliciting did Virginia have? She had four. And question number eight In what part of London did Mr. and Mrs. Evans live? Mr. and Mrs. Evans. Uh, Pimlico. There you go. That was exciting, wasn't it? I'm going to go and... um, I'm not having my kebabs tonight because I'm trying to save money. Got on a bit of a lean patch at the moment. So I I will be treating myself to rice and fish and some vegetables. Oh, and then a little bit of of school cake. I I might do it with custard. Mm. 
anyway that's me done uh have yourself a good week folks stay safe and be good lots of love and thank you for listening to the podcast be good bye if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with juvederm volbella xc and juvederm ultra xc your lip look whether it's subtle or bold can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at juvederm.com today that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m.com add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with juvederm volbella xc or juvederm ultra xc do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com slash covered. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.